Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Fiction. Science fiction. Horror. Fantasy. Crime. LGBT Thriller. You have now entered the House of Mystery. With your hosts, Eric Shapiro, David North Martino, John Copenhaver, and Al Warren. Good on FM Los Angeles. 102.3 FM Riverside. And 1050 AM Palm Springs. And uh, joining us now, all the way from Australia, is the author of the book, The Family, and it's called, and he is Chris Johnston. Thank you for being on the show. That's a pleasure. Uh, first of all, Chris, uh, so now you're a journalist. How did, how did you get into writing about the family? Um, well, I was, working for a, um, I was working for a newspaper here in, in Melbourne, Australia, and um, I've been covering um, various things to do with, um, I guess, quasi-religions, um, groups like the Jehovah's Witnesses, um, various cults and sects, and also um, we had a, which you've also had in the United States, we had a big um, series of inquiries into the Catholic Church and their treatment of, uh, um, and their uh, and their treatment of um, child sexual abuse, and I was kind of like, I got myself sort of engrossed in that sort of world in terms of reporting and. Um, I guess one thing led to another, and I started to um, wonder whatever happened to this notorious Melbourne-based cult of the of the I guess 60s, 70s, and 80s. Um, this was about I don't know 2014, and um, I started to um, go through all the newspaper archives and started to make a few calls figure out where it was at now and discovered um, back then that there was an awful lot happening and um, 
there were stories there to be written for the newspaper on, I guess, the aftermath of this thing that had happened here. And um, one thing led to another, and, and a few years later, we had a book. Well, that's interesting. Um, now, how did this family or so-called family start? Um, so it started... Um, it started essentially from the from the mind of one woman who who um, became the cult leader. Her name was Anne Hamilton Byrne, um, and she was from a country town near Melbourne. She was from a dysfunctional family. Her mother was a paranoid schizophrenic who died in a in a mental hospital. Um, her father was a kind of itinerant um, uh, failed soldier. Um, and she, through a process of reinvention, sort of emerged as a sort of a yoga teacher in the very late 1950s here in Melbourne, just as um, just as uh, yoga was sort of becoming a thing. And through her yoga classes, she began to collect um, a bunch of, um, I guess, hangers-on, um, and she started to sort of infuse her yoga classes um, with a sort of uh, uh, with a sort of a cod spirituality and she started to realize that she could um, exploit um, some of the people who were um, coming to her yoga classes and and that's what she did and they were they were in the main sort of wealthy middle-aged um, women from the um, from the more well-to-do parts of Melbourne, and soon enough, she had a, a had a following, and, and one thing led to another, and she started to sort of increasingly meddle in these people's lives and manipulate them to her own ends. Um, and this was, you know, this was before she started stealing children. I guess it started innocently enough with this woman who, you know, always had potential to. Um, who always had potential to start exploiting uh, vulnerable people, and, and 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 soon enough, through yoga, she did. Um, so this was the very late fifties. So she must have had a charismatic personality. Yeah, she was she was um, charismatic and beautiful. Um, some people say she looked like a sort of a young Kim Novak. She was blonde. She was um, statuesque. <clears throat> She um, puts on the airs and graces of someone who sort of mixed with the upper classes and with the elites, but in fact she, she wasn't, but she, the way she reinvented herself um, around about the sort of Second World War uh, time, around about the 1940s into the 50s, the way she reinvented herself then um, was, you know, into this sort of um, educated um, noble woman, I guess, which she in fact never was, but she managed to convince a bunch of people that that's who she was. Now, now, so did she start preaching to them, sort of, or or was it just a club, or teaching yoga and giving them little little hints of what they should do, and 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 how did she get that from that to um, getting money and things out of them? So she she slowly started. Um, sort of drip-feeding this sort of like plagiarised spirituality. So 
bits of Buddhism, bits of Hinduism, bits of Christianity, bits of um, bits of all kinds of a sort of mishmash of various sort of religious tropes. And she started drip feeding that into her yoga classes, and she started to um, see that the, uh, that the women at the classes could be um, manipulated really easily. And she started to um, grow wealthier. She, um, quite early in the piece, around 1961-62, she um, managed to convince a very eminent university professor in Melbourne, who was an Englishman, but he was in Melbourne at the time, um, a professor of physics named Rainer Johnson. She managed to convince him to come on board um, and um, essentially help her recruit um, adult members for this sort of growing cult, which by the early 60s had, um, had I guess, uh, accumulated a bunch of property and had built itself a temple um, in the Dandenong Ranges, which is a, a little mountain range just near Melbourne. Um, so this professor guy was... Um, well, he was a professor of physics and he was really eminent. In fact, he worked with Ernest Rutherford in the UK, splitting the atom. But by, by the 1960s, he was at the sort of twilight of his career in Melbourne and um, had moved into a sort of metaphysical set of beliefs rather than physics. So he was interested in, he started writing books about, you know, the meaning of the universe and, and, um, uh, spirituality and reincarnation and stuff like that. And she literally um, turned up on his doorstep one day in December 1962 and um, convinced him um, that she was a true prophet and, hmm. that, and, that, and that she was the teacher that he had been looking for. And by the winter of 1963, they were doing, um, she was, um, she was giving him LSD and magic mushrooms and he was declaring her to be Jesus Christ. Wow, what an impact she must have had. By this time she'd figured out that if you, if you give people enough acid and psilocybin, then um, they'll hallucinate and they'll believe what you say. And the whole LSD side of this story takes takes a really, really interesting turn in around the mid-60s um, when um, the cult, as it was certainly by then, um, because by, by then they'd started accumulating children as well, hmm. um, but not only had they, had they got themselves some children, they'd also got themselves a psychiatric hospital in Melbourne um, where um, where there was loads of LSD being used in therapy, which was legal back then, and she managed to infiltrate that and divert the supplies to her own cult and mm. to use the psychiatric hospital as a recruiting ground for cult members. So it, es it all escalated pretty quickly. Well, how did she get access to the psychiatric hospital? Like, and how uh, she's not a doctor. Do no, she's not a doctor. 
Um, but she befriended um, she befriended a, a a woman who who owned this this privately owned clinic. It was like a it was like a psychiatric clinic. So in the late sixties, if you went to a doctor in Melbourne and said you you know you were depressed or anxious or you you had signs of you know schizophrenia or bipolar or some all of those things which not much was known about back then. It's the sort of place you'd be sent. Um, and so she ingratiated herself into the life of the uh, couple who owned it and they became cult members. And then soon enough, um, the place was stacked with, um, with cult staff working there because she, this was a cult that um, didn't attract um, the sort of the hippies or the flower children or the dropouts or the, I guess, the sort of outcasts of society. Like, if you think of something like Jim Jones and the sort of people that he went for, they were the, they were the poor and the vulnerable. Um, right. and, and the family didn't, didn't do that. She, she went for the rich, the influential, the white collar people, the professionals. She loved, um, she loved doctors, nurses, architects, psychiatrists, lawyers, um, and as it turned out, these were just people that she figured could do things for her. So lawyers could could um, make things happen for her. They could fake documents. Architects could build stuff for her. Um, the psychiatrists could get all the LSD for her, which they were able to do back then because it was still legal in therapy. Um, yeah, so she amassed a whole bunch of enablers um, to help her out. How interesting. I, I was just thinking that generally when you hear about cults, you automatically assume that they hook the, uh, you know, the, uh, emotionally insecure or, uh, the vulnerable. It sounds like she, that's not what she was doing. She was going for those that did not seem vulnerable, but seemed to maybe help, help her, uh, with her yeah, goals. Yeah, I guess, I, yeah, I guess, you know, I mean, at its peak in the sort of mid-70s, the cult probably had, I don't know, maybe 500 members here in Melbourne. Certainly there was a, there was a car park outside their, 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 their lodge or their temple, which um, people described as having, you know, maybe 200 cars there for a meeting. They had two meetings a week. Um, so there were quite a few people, but I guess her inner circle were the, were the enablers were the professionals, but oh. then in this sort of general cult population, there, there would have been some of those sort of more vulnerable types. But she certainly wasn't going for the sort of the street people or the or the sort of church rejects or the or the or the crazies. You know what mm-hmm. I'm saying? She was she was going for she was going for people with means definitely, and right. that's one of the reasons why she grew so wealthy because she was able to. Um, she was able to, 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 to get money from them, you know, to, to, to get donations and to, to amass um, property um, through her, you know, dodgy lawyers and real estate agents. And she had property in the United States um, and the UK, and we think she had property in Hawaii as well. Um, so, you know, at one point she had, she had real estate all over the world and was sort of zipping between her mansions. Um, the most notable one was um, upstate New York uh, in the Catskills in um, in 
a little town there where she was eventually flushed out in the 90s. So she she held on to that property for a long time. And in fact, um, the cult's interests have um, really only just sold that property. That was maybe about five years ago. What what made her decide to start taking on children? Like what what was that? The reasoning behind that? Well. I don't think anyone will ever know what the real reason was. Um, Anne's dead, and when we were making the book, she died this year, a couple of months mm. ago, I think it was oh. July. Um, she was 98. And when we were making the book, doing the book, um, she was in an old person's home with, with dementia. Um, now... We, we went in there or we were taken in there by contact to, to meet her, but she was in such a, she was in such an advanced state of dementia that, um, to, to try and interview her or to get information from her would be both unethical and counterproductive because she was, she was in a sort of vegetative state. So as journalists, we could never ask her why she did it. Why she mm-hmm. why she began um, in the um, through the 60s and 70s? Why she um, amassed uh, a family of 28 children that, that none of whom were hers? Mm-hmm. Now um, she did she did through her life she did offer various vague explanations, things like she loved children. Um, she wanted a family. She, you know, it was all it was all very very sort of vague and 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 in that sort of language. Um, but what we think from talking to people who knew her and from looking into her family background was simply that she she grew up in a in a dysfunctional family and she wanted to feel part of something and she wanted to um, appear. She wanted to do anything she could to appear like a sort of a mother superior, like a sort of a benevolent sort of a benevolent sort of like mother figure, right? So through these cult, through her cult members, who, like I said before, were professionals, lawyers, etc. She also had doctors and nurses and social workers in hospitals, um, and don't forget in the 60s and 70s. Um, adoption and the whole idea of being a single mother was, you know, people didn't think of it in the way they think of it today. It's normal today. It's, it's an accepted part of, um, society. But back then, you know, if a, if a young woman, um, unexpectedly got pregnant, she was often, you know, shipped away to have the baby, you know, on the quiet or, you know, it, it wasn't accepted like it is today. And she and Anne was able to find out um, when and where single mums were having babies in hospitals and she was able through... <laughs> it sounds unbelievable when you retell it, but she was able to, through her, through her network of uh, insiders in the hospitals, to actually go in there or send people in there and literally take them. So we heard stories, first-hand stories, of babies being born in hospitals um, to a cult doctor, handed to a cult nurse who handed the baby to a cult operative who walked out of the hospital and gave the baby to the cult. Yeah. And she, 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 she did this um, 14 times. She had 28 cult children. 
14 of them were stolen in this manner and the other 14 were um, usually the children of, of cult adults, right? And the, the 14 that she stole, she gave her own surname at Hamilton Burn and she changed their Christian names and she housed them in a, in a sort of a compound beside a lake about two hours north of Melbourne. Mm. And the other ones... The, cult, the uh, children of cult adults, she didn't change their names and she housed them in sort of cult houses with cult parents, um, sometimes their own, sometimes not, up in the, in the hills near, near Melbourne in, in, in homes. So she sort of had them spread out. But the ones by the lake were, I mean, that's where all the really bad went down. I mean, they, they were imprisoned there, essentially. They, they were schooled there. They were dressed up identically. They were... Um, malnourished, they weren't fed properly, they were on a regime of, of um, pharmaceuticals to keep them docile. Um, when they hit 14, they were, they were dosed with LSD repeatedly as an initiation. Mm. Yeah. What? So, and, and didn't they colour all their hair like blonde, like that? Movie? Yeah, so, <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, that's the main sort of defining image of the cult and it's a it's a photo that's on the that's used on the front of the book in a form and it's a sort of children of the corn sort of um piece of imagery where where um the kids at the lake house were um yeah they had their hair dyed blonde not all of them 14 there probably 10 12 of them had their hair dyed blonde and cut uh, in exactly the same sort of pudding bowl haircut and, and they were dressed in sort of fine clothes, but it sort of was sort of like velour suits and stuff like that and sort of lots of gingham and pinafores and things like that. It was sort of, she was trying to, um, she was trying to give the image over that they were, you know, highly educated, um, compliant, polite, wonderful children. And in fact, um, what they were being taught in the house was that they were a sort of a master race. And that in the next cycle of life, they would be the leaders and they would, and they would become educated under her and then they would educate the rest of us, you know, to continue the planet. So it was a sort of an apocalyptic, it was a sort of an apocalyptic sort of spiritualist, um, sort of, um, um, cruel, um, sort of imprisonment beside this lake. The, uh, how about the, uh, isn't there a rumor or a conspiracy theory that uh, Julian Assange was uh, one of these children? <laughs> yeah, um, so it's both a rumor and a conspiracy theory. Um, we researched the shit out of that, obviously, um, because, um, look, for a while all signs pointed to him being there because he looks exactly like these kids. Um, and... What we found was that um, his mother um, was involved for a short time with a man who wasn't Julian's father, mm. um, and he was, I wouldn't say directly, but indirectly involved with the cult. He was very much on the fringes of it as a, as a participant for a very short time, mm -hmm. and um, Julian and Julian's mum was actually trying to get away from this guy. Um, so 
Julian and his mum never had anything to do with it. They they were never they they never they were never involved in any cult activities. Um, they were not part of it. Um, but uh, mum's boyfriend sort of was for a time. Ah. But it fits it it fits a a, a, cons- a conspiracist narrative to have him there. But yeah. um, I'm here to tell you that unfortunately he wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> had to ask, had to ask. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And now the, the LSD, what was the print point behind that? And how did she uh, tell the kids and the followers uh, to take LSD? How did she get it into them? Uh, well, it was a mind control tool. So she she figured out that um, people could become malleable under the influence of it and would be more likely to believe the outrageous things she was saying. Um so I was talking before about her key enablers. Um, her very, very inner circle, um, you know, were, were, were able to do all sorts of things for her because of their positions in society, you know, lawyers, uh, real estate agents, etc. But possibly her, one of her key guys was a psychiatrist um, who um, became involved with the cult. Um, and he was such an eminent psychiatrist. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale, starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. In, in Melbourne that he uh, found himself um, in a position of being the guy who was advising the government, the state government here in Victoria, in Melbourne, on uh, who should get licenses to use LSD in therapy. So the government said, okay, we'll, we'll give out X number of licenses um, 
to approved psychiatrists and we'll bring the LSD straight in from Sandals in Switzerland in liquid form and you can be the guy who decides who gets to use it in which psychiatric hospitals as a sort of an experiment to see if it could work for mental health disorders. <laughs> so the guy that was deciding how much LSD came in and who got hold of it was Colt. And so he obviously decided that he should get a bunch of it and two of his Colt mates who worked at the psychiatric hospital should also get a bunch of it. And it was coming in in, in, in liquid form. And she was also using um, psilocybin um, both from... Um, from laboratories, same laboratories in Europe, um, and then later from just mushrooms, picked, picked, you know, picked mushrooms. Um, so she was um, she was right into psychedelics. Um, did, took them herself, but mainly dosed other people. And she would do things like, you know, whisper in their their ear, you know, I'm Jesus, I'm, you know, follow me, I'm the truth. Um, all this sort of stuff. She would have them in, in um, you know, darkened rooms, and she would uh, there would be music playing, and she, you know, she did the whole, the whole, you know, the whole, <laughs> the whole catastrophe, really. About that kind of a person, you know, like one of the things I have been researching with my stuff is uh, psychopathic behavior and sociopathic behavior. It's definitely yeah. a complete lack of remorse for anyone else, but her own desires. Yeah, incredibly greedy, um, narcissistic psychopath. I think. Um, mm. I mean, this is a this is a woman who was so self-centered and so crazy um, that she, through her time as a cult leader, she mocked pregnancy two or three times. So she pretended that she was pregnant. Mm. Um, so that she could tell people that she was having more children. But mm. to some of those around her, it was obvious that she wasn't. And also she was, you know, maybe in her 50s by then. And um, also that's a pillow under her dress, not a pregnant, you know, not, not, not pregnancy. Mm. Um, and she was, what, what, one thing we found out during the research was that she had a cult uh, woman making these sort of fake maternity frocks for her. So she was, on one level, she was prepared to just tell stupid lies about being pregnant when she wasn't. Mm -hmm. And at the other end of the scale, she was prepared to, you know, defraud the entire sort of state's sort of like health and adoption system in order to, in order to steal other people's children. Hmm. So, so now, now she had a husband that was involved as well, I believe. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so Bill was her third husband. She went through quite a few husbands and men. She liked um, she liked ex-military guys. Um, she seemed to treat her husbands in the same way that she treated her cult um, enablers. Um, that is, um, that is, use them and exploit them for what they could do for her. Um, so Bill. Um, who she is in fact buried next to um, in Melbourne here in, a, in an old cemetery. Um, Bill became, I guess, her key enabler and became a became a sort of a, a father figure to a lot of the the children that they were 
that they were that they gathered at the house. I mean, it's kind of, I mean, you know, we, we've obviously spent a lot of time with the with the child survivors who are now, I guess, sort of in their forties, um, and some of them are doing great, some of them are doing not so great, and we obviously spent a lot of time with them. And I mean, one of the things for them was particularly a couple of them was that you know, Bill was their dad. That they thought they thought Bill was their father, but of course he. He wasn't. He had nothing to do with them. He was just sort of complicit in in the, in, in, in in taking them from the hospitals. Um, but he wasn't their father. So there was this bizarre sort of like strange misplaced loyalty towards Bill because you know you know he he, he you know especially a couple of the girls actually they you know they were really close to him and I'm thinking of one in particular, Leanne or Anna as she was known in the cult. She you know, she said she was a she was daddy's girl. She loved him. He loved her. <clears throat> she was, you know, she was his favourite, the apple of his eye, um, but also really cruel and manipulative. And obviously, as it turned out, not her dad. So hmm. they 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 you know to this day there's a lot of co- conflicted feelings and um, and strange um, threads that they've yet to sort of tie up with all those emotions. So how did it all end? How did it fall apart for for Byrne? Um, so in 1987, um, the lake house was raided by the federal police and the state police um, after two of the girls had independently escaped. Well, one escaped. The, the the woman I was just talking about, Anna or Leanne, she literally escaped. So as the kids grew older, they got they were becoming more independent, and they um, were becoming smarter and started to realise that something was wrong and that actually this life that they were living was really f***ed up. And uh, Leanne, um, being headstrong and sort of 16, 17 at the time, escaped. She tried to escape before, but she was successful. Um, and she, one thing led to another and she ended up uh, talking to the police on the outside some months later, um, and she hooked up with another um, young woman who, um, with Sarah Moore, who was sort of the the, 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 the sort of leader of the kids, um, who had who had been chucked out of the cult um, just before that. And the two of them hooked up on the outside, and one thing led to another, and they started talking to the cops, and then the cops, um, who it must be said had. Knew, knew that funny stuff was happening for maybe, when was this, 87, for maybe 15 years. I think the first police questions were asked about this cult in 1971. 87, they were finally raided. And the kids um, were um, put into state care. Um, and um, Anne, uh, just before the raid, she didn't know about it, but fortuitously for her, had left the country and a warrant was put out for her arrest. And um, then Bill left the country and the two of them went on a merry dance through the UK and the USA and Hawaii, um, evading capture for four years. Um, Interpol, Interpol got involved, the FBI got involved, the Victorian State Police were involved, 
Um, they were tracking their movements through airports. Um, eventually, and this is an incredible story, it's in the book, um, an FBI agent uh, called uh, Hilda Kogut. Um, she was um, she was with one of the New York departments, I think, and Anne and Bill were hiding out in their mansion in the Catskills. And Hilda, um, being a good detective, uh, uh, got in the postal van, uh, put on a postal uniform, and went on the posties run, the post the post delivery run through the um, little hamlet um, to suss out whether there was anyone in the house where they suspected Anne and Bill were, confirmed that they were there, and then the next day there was a, a, a raid at dawn hmm. with, with armed FBI agents who arrested the pair of them and um, put them in White Plains prison and eventually they were extradited back to Melbourne and they faced court on various minor charges in 1994. Now, the reason they, they were, they only faced minor charges was that, um, the, the police and the, uh, legal fraternity here in Melbourne, the prosecutors, the Crown, decided that the best way to get her back to Australia to face charges was to only slap minor ones on her. They didn't want to re-traumatise the children, the survivors. Um, if she was charged with, for example, kidnapping, um, administering drugs to minors, she would have pleaded not guilty and it would have been a lot harder, apparently, to get her back to this country. Hmm. So... So they found some minor charges involving forging signatures on social security papers to do with some of the kids' identities, the, the name changes. They, they, were, they were the only charges in the end that they could get her on um, because, like I say, this decision was made to uh, not risk losing the extradition and to not re-traumatise the survivors by putting them through a court trial. So she was eventually, they were eventually found guilty of these minor charges and fined a paltry amount of money. And um, that was essentially the sort of, the, the end of the cult as an active group of people. Hmm. A few, you know, things continued a little bit, but, um, and they still do to this day. Um, but really, it's a, it's a benign sort of group now that doesn't do anything. Um, and, and certainly when she was convicted um, and faced court, um, <clears throat> looking like a mere mortal, not like Jesus Christ, um, <coughs> certainly her support sort of fell away and she, she, she sort of retreated into the background and, and then got sick and then died earlier this year. Hmm. And what happened to her husband? Uh, Bill Bill died in I think the early two thousands. Um, he died of cancer. Um, so yeah, they're they're buried together in this little cemetery um, here in Melbourne. And um, there's um, there's a few things going on. Uh, one of the things we found out was that they have a um, bogus charity set up 
a tax-exempt charity to administer the money. They've been selling a bunch of their assets, including the house in the United States and some properties in Melbourne and the UK. Um, uh, there's this bogus charity is sort of like funneling the money around. We're sort of following the money trail at the moment. Um, and there's a, there's a strong likelihood of a, of a, of a court action here in Melbourne, um, hopefully next year, um, around compensating or, or potentially compensating some of the survivors. Hmm. Well, who runs the estate now? Um, a group of, a group of cult, uh, men who are, um, sort of older guys who are the children of formerly senior cult members. So back in the day, <clears throat> back in the day, like I was saying, she had all these lieutenants and enablers. Well, three, three of their kids who were, you know, guys in their 60s, 70s maybe now, um, they, were, they run the show behind the sort of veil of this fake charity, which we've tried to have investigated by the charities regulator, but they, they never have. Um, but there is a legal team uh, now looking at uh, the paper trail in, in order to try and secure some money for the survivors. That's all up in the air. Hmm. What do you hope that people get out of reading the book? I think it's just that these things can hide in plain sight. Like, um, here's a story... Um, Here's a story that spans, you know, 40, almost 50 years um, in Melbourne that that all played out um, in in plain sight, and um, and it's really to do with belief and hope, isn't it? So here was a here was a manipulative, narcissistic psychopath who 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 somehow, um, like all cult leaders do, managed to persuade a bunch of people. Um, that that she held the answers, and that and that and that they should believe, and that they should. There was something better, you know. There was an afterlife. There will, follow me, and and everything will be revealed, right? Which is sort of like the basis of all sort of religions, I guess. But but um, here was someone who 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 preyed on that, I guess, that sense of hope, and just managed to to exploit hundreds of people and ruin a whole lot of lives um, just just because of her own greed and it happened right in front of us um, and it happened with the uh, and 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 you know influential people were complicit in it you know it wasn't it wasn't it wasn't criminals or low lives although they did become criminals it was it was members of the establishment. And, you know, you can still see that playing out in cults today. You can still see it. I mean, look at Nexium. I mean, it's a similar sort of... It's a, it's a similar... Um, it's same but different, you know? It's kind of yeah. like... It's, 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 it's in plain sight. It's amazing that uh, it was so long ago, it's like they were the template for all these other cults. Yeah, that's right. I mean, she, Anne Hamilton Byrne was, she, she, she is a template. She's an archetype. She, um, the only, the key difference with her is that she's a she. <laughs> most, 
most successful cult leaders, and I say successful in inverted commas, most of them that we could think of are, are men. Jim Jones, Manson, the, the Nexium guy. Um, it's hard to think of a, an equivalent female cult leader. I mean, there are, there are precedents, but then there, there, there's no one that anyone would have heard of. Hmm. I mean, you know, it, it, that's, that's what made it unique. And in some ways, it's a, it's a kind of a twist for fairy tale because she was, she was a sort of, a sort of wicked witch character. And she, she had this, she had these innocent children, you know, innocent blonde children that she imprisoned in a scary castle sort of thing in the hills. So it had that, it had that fairy tale archetype thing to it as well, which sort of attracted us to the, to the narrative. Hmm. Now, now, uh, you guys, you, I, I say guys, you and Rosie Jones, now you guys did a documentary of this as well. Um, where, where can people um, find out more about you, the book, the documentary, um, and things like that? Do you have a website? Uh, yeah, so The Cult of the Family. Um, so just to clarify, Rosie, Rosie's the filmmaker. I didn't, I didn't, um, I was around when the doco was being made and we shared research for the projects, but she, she made the film, um, but we wrote the book together. So w w when I was researching it, I found out that she was doing a film. So I went and met her and, um, uh, and we, we decided to collaborate. Um, and she's she's made two um, she's made two films now. One was a cinema release, um, and one was a TV release here in Australia, three by one hour, and um, they're available um, online. And if I guess the the best search would be Anne Hamilton Byrne, the family, the cult of the family. Um, certainly, the book's on sale in the United States. A pretty sort of detailed look at it. It's, it spans um, right back from the 1920s, and even sort of digs a bit before Anne was born into some of the into some of the ideas that she um, that she sort of leapt on, and some of her own family background, and some of the I guess some of the cultural context that led to this happening. I mean, it was it's a sort of post-war story in a way, like um, you know. Um, the sort of the sort of post-war suburban sort of conservative boom that happened in this country and in your country as well after the war, hmm. um, when the sort of middle classes and the upper middle classes sort of settled, and there was plenty of money going around, and people were starting to question things, weren't they, back then? Yeah. And that get, getting into the 50s towards the 60s, the, the start to be questions started to be asked. You know, and, um, and, sh and, and so she was in the middle of that, um, exploiting people's sort of sense of, sense of wonder, I suppose, or sense of maybe even, maybe even their sense of sort of, um, questioning whether, you know, that post-war sort of thing was, you know, was that the answer or was there a higher purpose? You know, these, that, that was the sort of cultural milieu. Perfect timing from the 60s. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, you know, the Maharishi plays a, 
plays a, a small bit part in this story in that some <coughs> foundation cult members um, went and saw the Maharishi um, in Melbourne. Um, um, you know, there's, 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 you know, there's um, real strains with um, other gurus <coughs> from around the world who and um, you know met and um, um, tried to get involved with their own stuff. And yeah, it's a kind of, it's a kind of, um, it's a kind of a global story in a way. I mean, it's it, look, it, it played out mainly in Melbourne and and. Um, and their base was certainly here, but it, there, there were tentacles all over the world. Yeah. Wow. And so the family's done now. It's not going anymore. Um, well, some of the people are still alive, and like I say, there's this money flying around behind this charity, and there's various... They're, they're offloading their assets. I mean, I think what they're trying to do now is... is um, um, offload or hide their assets before a potential class action so mm. that they're not as liable. Um, that's just my theory. Um, but look, she's dead. Um, there's been no power play to replace her. There was sort of nothing to replace. She was, you know, she was inert. There was no worship. The, the temple which we went, which still stands, which Rosie and I went through, we were let in. Because um, we had a cult inside, who told us a bunch of stuff. A guy, a cult member, like a, a one of her um, key supporters, decided to um, speak with us and to show us things. I don't know why, but he did, and he he um, unlocked the doors of the lodge and showed us through, and he took us to meet her and all that. So, um, hmm. but no, they're not they're not really. All they're doing now is is. Um, um, I think um, mitigating for any court action, you know, because in the, I mean, what, what what she's left behind, apart from all the victims and survivors, is just a bunch of greedy people who want what's left of her money. I mean, that's mm. that, that's that's really what's what's happening now. Yeah, yeah. it's too too bad. Well, it's been a great conversation and uh, we recommend the book we'll have it up on our website so people listening can just go one click pick up the book the book is called awesome. family it's the shocking true story of a notorious cult and the author our guest chris johnson thank you for being here pleasure thanks guys thank you to find out more about our show guests or to listen to past shows from our archive please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com the mission has been completed the end by george he's got it it is the end how dare you if you're lying to me i'll be back this is Peter production of Something Weird Media. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show is over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.